Where are we going? Let's check the GPS. Welcome to this really special episode of the Engineering Word of the Day podcast. I'm Pius, your host, and my guest is the incredible electrical engineer, Hugo Fruhauf, who's helping explain today's engineering word of the day, GPS. Of course, we all know GPS as that thing hooked up invisibly to our cars and phones to tell us where we are, and it's really an acronym, not just a simple word. GPS stands for Global Positioning System. And why is Hugo Fruhauf the perfect person to talk about what GPS is? Well, he helped invent it. Hello. Hello, is this Mr. Hugo Fruhauf? It is. Hi, this is Pius Wong from the Engineering... Hugo Fruhauf was one of four American engineers who won the prestigious Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering for 2019 for the invention of GPS. He was honored last December in the UK, along with other leading inventors, Dr. Bradford Parkinson, Richard Schwartz, and the late Professor James Spilker. I spoke with Hugo over the phone to learn more about what GPS really is and how he got to take part in its invention. Yeah, I'm just wondering how does it feel to be recognized for this pretty important technology of GPS? Well, the whole the whole thing with going to Buckingham Palace and uh, and receiving an award, you know, you, you kind of you feel like you're dreaming. You don't want to wake up. <laughs> so that's that's kind of where I react, but. Uh, this kind of conversations were bound to happen sooner or later. I was part of it right from the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, both on the satellite design and the clocks. And so we we uh, actually got a 40-year-old award, and you kind of wonder how is it possible <laughs> 40 years to get an award. Well, we did a good job 40 years ago, and, and the thing still works like a charm. <laughs> Yeah, so let's talk about the technology, actually. As an engineer, I, I really am interested. First of all, what is GPS? What did you work on 40 years ago? Probably the best way to, the way I look at it is I was a World War II kid in Germany, so I know all about carpet bombing. And uh, the, the root of GPS certainly contained that element when the, when the military people start thinking about uh, uh, the next kind of uh, warfare, and we certainly didn't think it was going to be, you know, carpet bombing uh, and having two sides of battle. It's going to be strategic, not strategic, but tactical warfare. And, uh, and the only way to do that right is to reduce collateral damage. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of having a military system that could uh, navigate uh, our military and target weapons was, you know, quite well and alive in the 60s, uh, uh, not in the 60s, in the 50s and, uh, and mid-60s. So to, to make a point here then, is the government uh, always had in mind to not only have a, a military capability, but also to provide a signal for the world, so to speak. And so the signals that you can't receive that are encrypted and all kinds of things like that are in the military. And what you enjoy today is, you know, as much as, Five, maybe sometimes mostly 10 feet or less uh, accuracy so you know which uh, lane you're in and that's a commercial unencrypted signal which uh, was guaranteed by President Reagan back in the early 80s to give to the world and and President Clinton in the year 2000 
who then turned off, who then made that uh, commercial signal fully available to give to the world has already, uh, some people say, generated $1.5 trillion since the year 2000 uh, for the commercial sector. Wow. So in that light, then, I'm, uh, I look at both. I'm obviously more sensitive about the collateral damage than anybody else since I was a kid during the war. Yeah. But it's uh, it's a dream come true. We there's a lot of good people that worked on this, and unfortunately, not everybody can get get an award. Uh, right. But uh, we finally got it going, made it work, and uh, and that's what you got today. Yeah, you really clarify how this was a huge project, and I know that there were, of course, many people who worked on it, and and uh, three of your colleagues got the award with you. But I'm sure there are many other names that you could associate with it. Um, can you talk about at least your section of the project that you worked on? I understand that you helped develop the atomic clock that goes with GPS. Yes, I started working on GPS. Uh, what what the government does essentially is when it begins to do some really big things, uh, they like to use the term commercial and military coexistence. What that means is the military spends a ton of money on something and the commercial element of it, like GPS signal that you're aware of, uh, then pays for all the expenses, you know, 10 times over. And that's called commercial and military coexistence, meaning that uh, the military is completely isolated, undisturbed by what you do with the commercial side. And the commercial side is, you know, completely separated from the military. And so that's a wonderful way to, to build stuff. You know, you build stuff that has a commercial content. And as a result, uh, you uh, you have very good contracting. And so uh, the government then, uh, in that light, uh, puts out requests for proposals. And then people like RCA at that time, Philip Ford, Grumman, and uh, Rockwell International, you kind of bid on these things. You put together a team of experts in every area, payload, uh, orbital mechanics, uh, uh, power, uh, you know, signal structure, and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, my boss uh, helped me put together a team in, uh, back in 1973, and uh, we picked the best people we had at that time, and it began to utilize a lot of the stuff that was already been tested by the government, and uh, I was assigned as the chief engineer on the satellite, and that was the beginning part of, for me, was in the beginning of uh, 1973. The clock part of it, uh, an atomic clock is not... Radioactive, no, atomic clock simply means that the the element that uh, makes the time work is atoms, where uh, your wristwatch is a quartz disc and your grandfather uh, clock was a long pendulum. So, you know, essentially look at it that way. Mm -hmm. The atomic clock is the ultimate uh, accurate pendulum, so to speak. So uh, the thing that was interesting for me was is that, you know, Brad Parkinson, who was really the father of GPS, struggled very hard to get this program going. And as part of that process, uh, uh, he was going to be using uh, 21 Atlas F ICBMs that the government wasn't going to use. It's an Atlas booster. It has a throw weight of about 1,450 pounds. The reason I'm telling you all this is when you get all done, the satellite that we originally built weighed only 850 pounds. Mm. And then on top of that, you had a kick motor that goes from, you know, like a lower perigee at the lower side of the orbit to apogee of 12,000 miles, roughly. I had to have another 500-pound kick motor. So we were, I was struggling 
with uh, with the weight of satellite. It just wasn't enough booster. Today, you know, the satellites can anything they want. They just <laughs> have a SpaceX use a different booster. Mm-hmm. So it was a different problem. So long story short, then, the clocks that we need, a uh, clock we needed was something that you sit in the lab that's been in the laboratory since the 40s and 50s. Uh, in the lab, in the 40s, there was a refrigerator size atomic clock and for laboratories in the 50s and 60s, then they became, a, you know, a two microwaves. And we didn't, couldn't use any of that technology. First of all, it, you know, the radiation is so harsh that uh, my uh, hardening uh, uh, guy, the, the engineer that did all the radioactive hardening stuff said that if you were sitting on the satellite, you'd be den- dead in less than 10 seconds. So yeah. give you some idea of, of the cruel environment we're in. So uh, the clock then, essentially, uh, what was available uh, was uh, just not not going to do it. We needed something a lot smaller. Well, it happened to be that uh, a small comp- uh, a bunch of guys uh, from Germany, Ernst Jäscher and Gerhard Hübner, built a small little device and basically really had no market at the time. This is back in the in the late uh, in the late sixties. Mm-hmm. They uh, came up with a way of making an atomic clock, you know, four by four by four inches instead of uh, two microwaves. It, it was fantastic, but uh, in Germany they just uh, didn't see any need for it. Mm. He uh, found a customer that was going to use a small atomic clock uh, for an Omega navigation set back in 1969. And there was a a system, Omega, that was ground-based, you know, with ground-long cables, and and you radiate from the ground with large towers. But if you had an atomic clock in there small enough in that briefcase size unit that uh, uh, we were talking about, you could then fly places without one of the signals. And so the idea was to use an atomic oscillator and the, the couple I just mentioned, one of the founders uh, came to the United States and set up a small shop uh, right near Rockwell, on, on, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, and selling uh, this 4 by 4 by 5 inch atomic clock, very good, uh, to this customer in Costa Mesa, California. My frustration uh, of not being able to get anywhere uh, was just, just came out of the uh, it got solved out of the blue <laughs> when I uh, was introduced by chance to this uh, Gerhard uh, Gernst Dieschert who had moved uh, uh, to a small company with a couple of three people. Wow. He had this atomic, small atomic clock, and I thought to myself, my God, this can't be right. I was, <laughs> after eight hours, I was dizzy. I thought I was dreaming. Like or, it was fake or something. <laughs> yeah. So long story short, then, uh, in the next year or so, uh, uh, we worked together, and uh, I have uh, some reasonable knowledge in this area uh, uh, from the laboratory standpoint, and uh, Rockwell then with a teaming agreement with uh, what was at that time called Ephratom, uh, which the founders of Ernst Yesha and Gerhard Hübner, uh, we stayed, started. They, they did some physics, and we built we built the entire system, electronics and hardening, and da 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 da. It was about six, you know about a year effort, and we were able to get a you know a, a atomic clock in there that was maybe twice that size. You know, it was about six six by five by four or something like that. And that's the uh, the story of the atomic clock. Uh, as a matter of fact. 
just a couple of years ago, we, we turned one of them off that was launched in the 90s. Uh, in the 90s, the atomic clocks that we started with in 1978 were still the, the, the clock of choice. There was nothing else available. And uh, just uh, 19, let's see, last year, in January of 18, we turned off one of the longest clocks. It was turned off after 24 years of operation. So. Wow. So that's the story of the clock. Yeah, thanks. And just to be clear, this subsystem that you've developed, this atomic clock, besides just being small and up there, like it's it's a critical piece of equipment, right? Without it, what would happen to the GPS system? Well, you have to look at it this way. GPS is the clock and the clock is GPS. Without mm. the clock, then you can shut down all the Air Force bases, you can shut down everything. You're not gonna the clock is the central number one key figure because you gotta have something so accurate to uh, you know a, a nanosecond to be able to measure the speed of light. Mm -hmm. The speed of light travels about three feet in one billionth of a second. So you can imagine that if you have a clock that's two billionth is six feet, and you know a, a small number you know ends up being a hundred to two hundred foot error. So the clock has to be better than a billionth of a second to measure the speed of light because that's how the signal comes from the satellite to your receiver, and roughly it travels at the speed of light, like all other FM radio stations and everything else. And so today the GPS system is super accurate. I, I forget how accurate. We can get it within a couple feet. Is that correct? Yeah, your, your car, your cell phone car thing probably does uh, on an average of 5 to 10 feet, I, I would see. say, uh, easily. Now, with the GPS being augmented, for instance, uh, we call it augmentation systems where you have another tower that's measuring a GPS with high-performance receivers and then corrects the corrects and so on, you can get down to millimeters. Right now we're, we're measuring tectonic plates uh, at oh, a couple wow. of millimeters yeah. of movement. So I still have more technical questions. I, I do want to ask a little bit about more about your background, if you don't mind, but, but just one more technical thing. For the Engineering Word of the Day podcast, I often like to talk about where the words even come from. And I noticed that when I look up GPS, it's not just called global positioning system, it's often called the global positioning system. Uh, because there's only one system, is that right? No, uh, that's not right. Oh, okay. Uh, the, probably the we were we were the first, and and as I mentioned earlier, you know, position targeting was everything, and then having a commercial element to it. Okay. Now, uh, the Russians started a program called GLONASS, and they began to uh, build satellites and have this, the same kind of orbits and the same kind of thing. The signal structure was uh, not, not quite good enough in the beginning. However, now their satellites is using CDMA, you know, uh, pseudo-random noise kind of signal that we basically invented uh, as, as Americans. And uh, so they started the system that became operational about five years after us. We were fully operational somewhere in the early 90s. And uh, then uh, Europeans started their own system called Galileo, where, again, it's a basic copycat from us. And then the Chinese Baidu or, uh, system is now also being developed and probably operational in a couple of years. And, uh, and Galileo for Europe will be operational in uh, probably in a year. Mm. Now, the question you're thinking of now is, we got one good system, why do we have everybody else do a copy? <laughs> well, for the commercial element, all the 
countries agreed that that they would send a signal into the same foot. Think of the foot, uh, football field uh, and 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 everybody's got raindrops falling and uh, the 1,023 bits of GPS is like a like a raindrop falling in the football field. And every satellite has a different uh, code, and so therefore we ag- we agreed that the commercial signal would always be uh, uh, capable of having everybody's uh, satellite navigation system be able to communicate, with, uh, you know, and and use that same frequency. And the reason I mention that is because uh, we now, if you're in the future, you'll be navigating with, uh, you don't know, the, the, the receiver will pick the satellites based on position and how accurate the clocks are between them. And so you could be having one Chinese satellite, three, uh, you know, two from us and somebody, you know, a bunch more from Galileo. So that is the good part. And uh, essentially, as we are no longer the you know the only only people that would do this. So mm-hmm. therefore, uh, everyone is going to be participating with the military again being separate. Now, why would the other people have a system like GPS? Because they want to, because GPS they want to use that for the military. So mm-hmm. so you see, everyone now wants to be able to do what we do for the military uh, purposes. And so is GPS and even these competing systems, are they still evolving then? Are they still changing today? I think Chinese, uh, the Chinese are doing a great job, and they are uh, they're, uh, basically everybody is finished, uh, ready to go operational. Uh, we were uh, operational in the, in the early 80s and f- fully operational in the early 90s. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the competing systems are, you know, t- about to come come alive for uh, for both the commercial side of it, which I just described, and uh, for their own military purposes. So everybody wants to have their own system because they don't want anybody to tell them what to do militarily. Mm. So I often talk to younger engineers, either students who are in college right now or people who want to become engineers, and they often have to learn about basic technologies like engines or the computer, that kind of thing. Is there anything you think that young engineers today that they really should just know about GPS? Well, uh, GPS is, is its own world, so, so to speak, uh, because it has software people, the best there is, um, hardware people, electronic engineering, computer engineering, orbital mechanics, signal structures, um, Tracking and, and data and control. Mm-hmm. It has the power system. It has the the antenna systems and HPAs, which is different. Solar ray structures, which is part of power system. No, it has about twelve or thirteen different disciplines, which are very very specific. Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, as a as a the chief engineer on the satellite, I was a good systems guy. Mm-hmm. I knew uh, there's a lot of great people that make will turn your telephone telephone into a raindrop size, and that's chip makers. So those guys are a whole different breed. So in general, I would say, to me, for me, electronic engineering has got to be the center of it because, sure, we need mechanical engineers to make the structure and stuff, but the stuff that really makes it operate, the payload, so to speak, payload means the thing for which it's purposed, ends up being very, very, very electronic. Mm. And so that kind of leads into your background. You are an electrical engineer, right? 
I was wondering what your background was and how you got into engineering. Well, uh, I'm an, I was an immigrant uh, back in 53, 54, and I uh, went to school. At, at that time, it was dry tech, and it had a program which uh, I loved, and that was that uh, was uh, two and a half years at 50 weeks per year school. Oh, wow. And at that time... Uh, accreditation of, of DeVry, which is now DeVry University, was, was questionable. And so uh, I went through the whole program, got that degree, and that, it, that is my engineering background, and it's been the best thing that ever happened. And then after 40 years, 30 years, I end, ended up getting a presidential and key executive MBA from Pepperdine University. Hmm. It served me, tech, uh, DeVry served me because of the hands-on uh, hands-on capability for imagine 50 weeks a year going to school for two and a half years yeah. it was just had everybody beat once i got a job i i left the uh, i graduated in 1960 and i was hired by martin marietta company uh, who and they were launching um, you know, weapon systems from the cape and from vandenberg air force base in california so i'm really a rocket guy uh, and uh, for the apollo program i was uh charge of the of the testing is chief test conductor of the second stage of the Saturn V, which was built by Rockwell, the same company I mentioned, mm-hmm. built GPS. We had the contract, and, you know, that was before the GPS contract. I was just getting off of uh, the Saturn program in 1973 because uh, Apollo 17 didn't launch, and I started immediately at that time at, at, uh, at GPS. You make it sound so easy, <laughs> like transferring from this one difficult field to rocketry and, and doing all this stuff. It's kind of inspiring. In fact, the DeVry University uh, that you mentioned, is that the one in Chicago? Like, I'm from Chicago, and I'm wondering if it's that same one. From Belmont Avenue, yes. it's called DeVry Tech then. Okay. You know, accreditation was questionable, but right. it sure worked for me. No, I understand. My brother lives two city blocks away from there, so I was always in the area. <laughs> but But I understand the... The news about uh, DeVry. But at the same time, like I talk to a lot of people today, teachers and engineers who want more of that hands-on experience that you talk about. So it's kind of interesting that you say that that was important for you. It's, it's everything. When the first thing I started doing is uh, in 1960, you know, being part of the launch team and start building ground support equipment. You know, that it was archaic to me, and, and I put in countdown clocks. Uh, think about what happens. You, the, the Saturn V right now, the second stage was uh, over uh, f- about 450,000 uh, gallons of liquefied hydrogen. I mean, just imagine. You, and all these things were tested first before they were flown. Von Braun's idea was that you don't fly anything that you can't test first. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, uh, you know, we were very busy. I was very busy with my team developing ground support equipment that would make it easy for for you to count down a vehicle, uh, you know, through through all its phases. And then in Mississippi, it was at that time it was called Mississippi Test Facility. Today, Stennis Space Center. We had gigantic test stands that were 300 feet tall, and the barges would uh, come in uh, with the vehicles on them, and. Uh, get put into uh, these test stands, screw down, and then you make it think it's flying. So you go through the whole process 
of uh, counting down the vehicle, thinking it's actually going to let off, uh, and it gets lit off, and, fly, and uh, you make it look like, or make it feel like it's flying through all its aspects. The reason I mentioned it about Ron Brown is because he was bent on testing everything before put pilots on it, and there was never a one time, there was never a second during the launch phase that those astronauts could not have been shot off the top of that huge Saturn V rocket. The parachute would open, they would go into the Cape Canaveral Bay. Never a second were they in danger. Now, Mm -hmm. why do I say that? Uh, Because uh, we killed 14 people, um, seven of them on the ground, and a few more, and seven in the, and and part of that uh, problem is what I said about Von Braun. How do you test a solid rocket motor on the side of of a spacecraft? You can only, Test the one that like one, but you can't test the one that flies, right? It's like f- f- testing a Fourth of July rocket right. going up. You, you, you can only touch another one that's like it, but not the one you're going to fly. Right. That, that's what kills people. And so, you know, we were very busy. The first generation NASA was fabulous. The second generation, read the accident reports to judge yourself. Now we have a third generation coming along. And yes, I've been in... SpaceX facility in Hawthorne twice, and uh, they have brilliant, brilliant people, a little bit too young for me, a little bit too arrogant, to be honest. Mm. So anyway, that was my background. Uh, then as soon as I left Martin Marietta and joined Rockwell, uh, I was privileged to become the chief test conductor at the age of 27. Wow. So. Yeah, I think test engineers in different fields have different reputations, but I think in the media they, a lot of people think test engineers just blow things up, but it sounds like you have to be really disciplined to, to save lives and, and make things work. Oh, my God, yes. So systems engineering, I was a good circuits guy, too, uh, but systems engineering, putting block diagram together and say, do this one, do that one, to, to reach an end, that, that's my bag, systems engineering. Yeah. So that would be the short, long answer to your <laughs> original question. Okay. No, that's fair. Um, and I had read that not only were you working as an engineer, but you led a lot of people. You 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 worked your way up basically to be chief technology officer for more than one uh, engineering organization. Is that right? No, actually, uh, it's actually better than that. Uh, after I left Rockwell, in when we, after we launched the first uh, few satellites in. February of 1978, uh-huh. I left Rockwell and became the president of this comp- German company called Effertom, and uh, and uh, chief technology officer and 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 the president. And uh, I have been on every job I've had. I've been the CEO. <laughs> so, yeah, wow. And, yeah, I, I never worked except until uh, 19, 1973. After that, I was CEO of every place until I retired. Sort of retired. That is a a lot of engineers' hopes and dreams in a way. How did you make that jump? I guess I'm sure it wasn't just instant. You worked really hard. So, what are some tips? I guess you could give to um, engineers and in industry to to achieving that. Well, it's, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, I I've always just automatically got these jobs. <laughs> <laughs> And the reason is, is be, uh, two things. One is, I believe strongly that CEOs of companies, especially technical companies, ought to be led by somebody that, that is really, really, really technical. Mm-hmm. And that's been always my bag. I could uh, lead companies into new products 
for example, after I took uh, over that uh, German company in California, we, we built it up to you know about a hundred million dollars, uh, close to that a year in you know atomic oscillator applications. We had them in tanks, we had them in airplanes, we we made them radiation hardened, we made them military hardened. Uh, we just you know went through the whole process uh, of uh, of all the possible applications, and one of the early ones that ended up uh, you know being huge success. Uh, was uh, cell sites, you know, cell sites. Uh, to locate the cell sites and have an atomic oscillator in the cell sites, you never have to send in another maintenance or calibration engineer. Atomic oscillator will will keep, uh, you know, such accurate time that uh, that when you're moving from one cell site to another in your car, you don't, you can't be out more than a microsecond uh, of time. Otherwise, you get stuttering or pops and stuff like that. So the atomic oscillator found its, you know, in the United States alone, 400,000 units uh, we sold into cell site systems in the 80s. Mm, wow. And then uh, in 1997, I joined my, my, my boss that I had uh, both for, uh, for the Apollo program and for GPS. He, he was the CEO of Alliant Tech Systems in Minneapolis, a spinoff of Honeywell, and I was the president of that uh, to their defense group and, uh, you know, went right back into inventing stuff. You have to invent stuff to make money. <laughs> it sounds like you've invented lots of things, though, not just parts of GPS, but you kept on building on that. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, so just as a side question, you make me think that a lot of engineers are kind of afraid of higher level physics. I'm curious how technical do you have to be in this line of work? Do you have to know a lot about relativity and higher mathematics and all of this stuff? No, it's not that complicated, quite frankly. Uh, I got on to, you know, the what physics I needed uh, for for this atomic oscillator. You don't have to be a... a you, there's a lot of good people out there. First of all, you always have a physicist on staff for this kind of stuff. And then all you have to do is, you know, think straight a little bit and uh, and get the guy you have on staff to open his mind a little bit. And uh, it's, it's just not, for me, it's not that hard. But mm. but you also have to have a little bit of a knack for, for what you're trying to do. Lion Tech, you know, we were developing weapon systems. And, uh, and geez, the stuff I learned there, I mean, I was always, I, I was always the guy learning. Uh, mm. Systems engineering electronics is, is just my bag. And now I, I teach uh, uh, international e economics. <laughs> at, at Pepperdine's grad school, so you know, I, I uh, you know, right now I'm I'm more valuable there than you know I'm old now. So I, I uh, e economics is a wonderful field, but to me, economics is systems engineering. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting analogy. I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it does make sense. Large systems that have to work together. Yeah, global economics. My God, it, that's systems engineering. If I ever yeah. heard it. Uh, what kind of non-technical skills do you think engineers need to have today? With people skills, engineers, the smarter they get, the harder they get along, get along with. I've worked for two geniuses in my life, and uh, I loved every minute of it because they were such pain in the butt. <laughs> so uh, no that names, would be the things that I noticed first. 
Many thanks to my amazing guest, Hugo Fruhauf, electrical engineer and engineering CEO, as well as co-inventor of GPS. You can find out a whole lot more about the development of GPS and about Hugo's life and career at Hugo's website, hugofruhauf.com, linked in the show notes. This has been a co-production of the Engineering Word of the Day podcast and the K-12 Engineering Education podcast made by yours truly under my studio, Pios Labs. Navigate yourself to more knowledge about engineering and engineering education by visiting the show websites engineeringwordoftheday.com and k12engineering.net. And hey, if you like what I do here, please consider supporting me at my Patreon. That link is at this episode's show notes or on the show websites. Once again, I'm Pius Wong. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>